This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, I have back with me what's become an annual tradition, Philip Urosky. Philip is a partner at Sherman and Sterling, and he's the editor of the Sherman and Sterling FCPA Digest and has been so for quite some time. We review the 2020 FCPA Digest, taking a look at the large amount of quantum in FCPA settlements, the growing cooperation between the Department of Justice and other agencies in enforcement actions and what that might mean going forward. We consider the Goldman Sachs and Airbus actions and the Thomas Moyer a prosecution in California. He's the head of Apple's global security. We conclude with a look at enforcement under the Biden administration and the changes to the Bank Secrecy Act, which may inform SCPA enforcement going forward. I know you'll enjoy it. I also hope you will check out my new podcast, ComTech on the Intersection of Compliance and Technology with my co-host, Valerie Charles. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network. Check it out. I know you will enjoy it. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and I'm thrilled to have back with me Philip Hiroski. He's a partner at Sherman and Sterling, and we're here to talk about the uh, always great Sherman and Sterling FCPA Digest for 2020. Philip, first of all, this is becoming an annual event, so welcome back. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We could do it twice a year if you wanted. <laughs> I was wondering if you could start with uh, just uh, telling our audience who, who may not know, how is the uh, Digest compiled and produced annually? Well, look, the Digest has, um, was a creation of my partner, Dan Newcomb, back in the day when there was one or two cases a year. It used to be mimeographed and, and hand-distributed. Um, but even at DO, when I was at DOJ, we used the Digest as, a, uh, as the compendium of all the cases, and we even handed it out to uh, our counterparts in other countries at, uh, as we were negotiating the OECD and Council of Europe uh, conventions. Today, it's, it's, it's grown. Um, it's gone online. When I came back to Sherman after DOJ, um, what had been the trends and patterns introduction, which was really a statistical introduction to the digest, which was published in hard copy, uh, we, we moved into a more analytical type of um, our article that tries to identify the trends and, 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 and match them up with what we saw Things, things were happening in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and, and, you know, and how it's done is that I, I take no credit for it at all, is I have a very talented team of uh, editors um, who, who have a devotion to digging into FCPA cases and, and making sure that we're up to date and covered by it. And then I put my name on it. <laughs> well, uh, good for having your name on it. If we could turn to the digest now, uh, 2020 saw total sanctions of approximately 4.25 billion, making it a record-shattering terms and uh, a year in terms of quantum of penalties. Do you have any thoughts on what this might mean uh, going forward, or because we had a change in administration, does that kind of wrap into it, or does each year really stand on its its own independently? Well, I, I don't think each year stands on its own independently. I think we definitely have seen trends. Uh, in, in the types of enforcement cases that are brought and, and, and um, 
uh, things like international cooperation that has developed over the years. But I'm, I'm not sure that the, the quantum of the penalty in, in 2020 really means anything. One thing, two of those cases, Goldman and um, Airbus, accounted for 87% of that amount. So two cases accounted, and, and we've seen this in the past as well, where one or two big cases you know, distorts what's actually going on. More often we see um, cases in the, in, the, in the area of 10 to 20, $25 million, which is a, a sort of a standard FCPA case. We didn't see as many of those this year, and you know all those statistical metrics tended to go up last year, partially because there were just less cases, and and the Goldman and Airbus case, you know, sort of uh, took all the oxygen out. Um, and and, I, I, and the less cases last year, I think, are entirely attributable to the pandemic rather than politics. Uh, I, I, we didn't really see, and in the Trump administration, um, you know, a change in. FCPA enforcement. You know, at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was a bunch of noise about it because he had given an interview several years before where he said it was the worst statute ever. And his nominee for the SEC uh, chair, uh, Jay Clayton, had been part of a Bar Association committee that had written a uh, paper that was critical of FCPA enforcement. Uh, but in fact, you know, once and then there was a lull uh, because it took a long time, if you remember, for the Trump administration to actually staff the DOJ, uh, particularly in the criminal division and, um, and, and above. And so but once that was out of the way, you know, things just chugged along in the fraud section with 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 cases at a you know, fairly standard um, level. Where I see, you know, is that going to change in the Biden administration? Probably not. Again, there's going to be a short delay because, you know, we don't have political appointees in place yet, uh, you know, at the criminal division and even at the, de- you know, the deputy and attorney general level. And what we've seen in the past is that big cases, important cases that, you know, tend to be put on hold until there's a political appointee in place to approve. So there may be a, a delay, and the pandemic is still with us, of course. You know, uh, we're all, uh, and that's going to delay. But the major things that happened over the past four years in the Trump administration, DOJ, relating to FCPA, which would be things like the no piling on policy, the uh, permanent introduction of the FC, FCPA corporate prosecution policy, uh, the um, um, restatement or revision of the monitoring. Uh, monitorships policy, those are likely to stay in place. I think what we, what we may see more, whereas the pendulum in the Trump administration sort of swung toward prosecuting individuals over companies and a lot more declinations of companies, we may see less declinations of companies and um, uh, in, in this administration. But I, I think generally, um, whatever else happened at DOJ during the last administration, the FCPA unit itself seemed to have been fairly well insulated from politics. Philip, we've seen, obviously, uh, close cooperation between the Department of Justice and other agencies and regulators in investigations of corruption cases. But this year we saw uh, enforcement uh, of with different types of laws and different agencies. So Airbus, we had uh, OFAC, uh, with Goldman Sachs, we had uh, the OCC and the Fed, and then we had one with the CFTC and the Department of Justice at the end of the year. I was wondering, <clears throat> is, uh, does this new trend, is it a trend? And if so, will we see other agencies 
other than the Department of Justice or Securities and Exchange Commission uh, getting into anti-corruption enforcement now? Uh, yeah, quite honestly, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Um, you know, bribery and sanctions, uh, you know, o, you know um, OFAC, have, have always been linked in policy. You know, the idea is that, you know, bribes are a means by which sanctioned countries and sanctioned entities manage to evade uh, sanctions. And we've seen that, you know, for a while. And uh, with the passage of the Global Magnitsky Act, uh, you know, that was a direct authorization to uh, the executive branch to put, to use, uh, to put individuals and entities associated with corruption on the sanctions list. So it's not that surprising to see that overlap with OFAC. Uh, I think the CFTC is more of a surprise. And, um, you know, I think the role of the CFTC is somewhat puzzling. You know, the FC FCPA itself doesn't give the CFTC, uh, as opposed to the SEC, uh, any enforcement responsibility, uh, nor does the CFTC's governing statute, the CFA, suggest any role uh, or any uh, with respect to corruption. Um, and also, I don't see any gap in enforcement that the CFTC needs to step in to fill. Um, you know, there's in the case that came out last year, VTOL. I mean, there was a parallel FCPA case by DOJ that seems to have covered the ground. So it's not really clear why, you know, the CFTC needs to step in. As a practical matter, of course, you know, look, I mean, the head of the enforcement at the CFTC uh, up until recently was a former AUSA. Uh, you know, FCPA cases are, um, are, are, you know, get press and they get fines. And, um, you know, they, the CFTC may very well just looked over and seen their counterpart in the securities markets, the SEC making hay with respect to FCPA cases and saying, wait a minute, we want a part of this. You know, this is, its theory is that if a company that trades commodities or commodities futures, you know, pays bribes to obtain commodities or inside information about them, you know, that can amount to manipulation of the commodities markets or the futures markets. Um, you know, again, it seems a stretch, but, you know, perhaps the idea here is that if they bring a CFTC case, they can achieve some degree of supervision beyond what the DOJ might do or might be able to exclude those companies from the markets in a way that the DOJ might not do. But, um, but altogether, it, it is a bit of a, a puzzle as to why, you know, what role the CFTC is going to play going forward. Uh, I come out of the energy space and, in Houston, and the longest time I had wondered about energy traders uh, because they do a lot of business with uh, state-owned enterprises, and they buy from them and sell from them. So I wasn't surprised to see that as an issue. They are still viewed as even within energy companies as the wild west and mm -hmm. in many ways the cowboys of the companies um but the cftc angle was interesting and and in the goldman case we saw the department of financial services from the state of new york involved uh dfs does have uh, jurisdiction over banks that are chartered in new york but was it surprising to see them in uh, this fcpa action well, I, I, you know, I've dealt with DFS in sanctions matters, and you know they're an aggressive agency, and it doesn't surprise me to you know see them get involved in anything, frankly. Um, but 
I think what what happened there is, you know, look, there's always been cooperation between DOJ and the regulators, you know, some degree of cooperation. Sometimes it's, it's you know, less harmonious than others, but you see the parallel investigations and parallel cases in AML instances, for instance, uh, or, or something like that. Um, we haven't seen it in FCPK, FCPA cases as much because most of the banking cases that we've seen so far don't really touch on regulators' issues. Um, they were, you know, for instance, hiring cases, you know, the, the princes and princesses cases, you know, um, were interesting. And, and you know, um, I, I have separate issues involving the FCPA and whether those are violations of the FCPA or not, but they they didn't go to safety and soundness of the financial institutions involved. They didn't affect compliance of the other banks like a sanctions case might. They didn't involve money laundering, you know, other than, you know, uh, at a, a very technical level. And, and, and they didn't usually involve the U.S. operations of those banks. You know, the Golden case is different. It was massive money flows. It was a significant financial matter for the regulated bank. It involved allegations of money laundering in the United States. You know, these are all things that catch the attention of banking regulators. And so um, given, you know, the, the, the wide publicity and spread of the um, uh, 1MDB scandal, I, I wasn't really surprised to see um, DFS show up in that case. I'd like to turn now to one of the enforcement actions that I thought was the most interesting and that's the Thomas Moyer uh, enforcement action. He is the uh, global head of security at Apple, former CCO, and uh, a prosecution was brought against uh, him for uh, alleged uh, uh, providing a benefits to a um, county sheriff in Santa Clara County as opposed a county sheriff's office as opposed to the county sheriff himself. So first of all, we have a, a uh, FCPA or anti-corruption enforcement action that's domestic, number one. And number two, we have it uh, allegations against the ag an agency or involving an agency and not the head of the agency or a member of the agency. Read in conjunction with uh, Opinion Release uh, 2001, could this signal a new approach uh, perhaps to FCPA enforcement or is it something that you've seen in the past? Uh, well, you know, as you say, this the, the Apple case or the Moyer case was, was not an FCPA, it was a domestic case, but, you know, DOJ is involved and, and there is a strong overlap both in language and approach to, um, between domestic corruption and, and uh, you know, foreign corruption. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think the opinion and the, the Moyer case um, are somewhat different things. The opinion relates to uh, can you pay a government entity for performing services and using its influence, uh, you know, with another government entity, or in this case, a different part of the? It was a state-owned bank, uh, with which the opinion or the relator uh, in that case, you know, was, had, was seeking business and had obtained business, and then a different part of the bank came in and said, you know, we want you, you should pay us a fee because we provided you know uh, services to you to help you get that business. But, and, and the, the DOJ said, well, as long as you're paying the government and it was for services, then, you know, that, that would seem not to raise an FCPA violation issue. We wouldn't bring a prosecution based on those facts. The Moyer or Apple case is different because there you're provide the issue is 
you're providing some sort of benefit to a government agency, in this case, the sheriff's office or the under sheriff's office, and um, in exchange for some unrelated government service. So you're not paying them to provide that, uh, to provide a service. You're saying, I'll, we'll give you the iPads. And I think, you know, and then, you know, you'll expedite or grant our weapons, um, permits for our, for our security force. And, um, so, the, so, so this comes in the FC, if this was an FCPA case, you know, then, then you come in and I look, when I was a DOJ, you know, uh, prosecutor, and I, I know my successors have said it as well, is that you can bribe the government. You just can't bribe the government officials. So that, you know, if the government comes in and they say, you know, we want you to build a hospital or a school or a road or dig a well, you know, as long as that is for the government or for the community and not for the government official, you're not digging a well on the government official's, you know, farm, uh, that would not ordinarily be viewed as an FCPA violation. And in this case, in the Apple case, in the Moyer case, you know, the allegations, as far as we can tell from the pleadings, is that the company provided, um, I think, iPads to the office itself and not to the undersheriff or the sheriff. And um, in that case, we would we would normally, if you if you were asked to advise in an FCPA case, we'd say as long as you document that the, the benefit went to the company and that this was for the, the official, you know, the official use rather of the government um, agency. And, and you booked it properly, and, and uh, you know that would be a an acceptable, you know, benefit to the to the um, uh, government itself, and not a violation of the FCPA. Um, you know, here, you know, you may say this is sort of tacky. You know, you're that you know, you know the company is giving a benefit to the government in order to get ahead of the line or to get you know, uh, okay, but that's not doesn't mean it's illegal. Um, and it, it sort of comes back to the debate, you know, I, uh, I've had for years in the FCPA area is what, what does it mean to give a benefit to a government official? Um, you know, the statute says money or anything of value, but does that include something that's intangible? Like just, you know, giving a charitable contribution that makes the government official feel good. So he's motivated to help you here, you know, giving something to his agency that makes his life or his officer's lives easier, is that a, a, some, a benefit to the government official that can be prosecuted as, as corrupt? Um, you know, does it, it, how, what is, how, how closely do you have to tie that to some sort of personal benefit to the, to the undersheriff here? You know, does this help him get promoted? Does it help him get elected? Does he get to take credit for it in a way that somehow benefits him other than just, you know, making him feel good about you? And I don't think, you know, look, we're still working on pleadings here, but certainly the case doesn't seem to have really developed facts that would support a, an allegation of corruption. You know, cutting corners, you know, jumping the line, but not corruption. So the um, the analysis that you just walked us through, or at least some of the potential facts, are those things that companies need to start thinking about if they're going to make a donation to a foreign governmental agency, a charitable donation, or some of the other things that we've uh, traditionally done? And and I would say LBJ was always one of my heroes. And of course, his some of his favorite phrases was build them a bridge, build them a road, build them a school, build them a something. And yeah. uh, we now need to start kind of digging deeper beyond the 
to build them a something? Well, if this is a if this is as you know a sea change in the DOJ's approach, yes, you do. I'm not sure it is. Um, you know, this could be a couple of a, uh, cowboy AUSAs out in um, you know the Northern District of California. Um, it could be um, that there are facts that have not been developed or publicized in a way that shows you know more of a link to a benefit to the sheriff or the under sheriff. Uh, but if if DOJ is taking the position now that providing, um, you know, this kind of benefit, look, if this had gone to the sheriff himself, I mean, you can if if an iPad had gone to the sheriff himself in an FCPA world, you might just call this a facilitation payment. Now, facilitation payments are illegal in any country in which they're made. They're illegal. They're just not going to be prosecuted. They're an exception to the FCPA but they're not an exception to those countries' domestic laws, and they're not an exception to our domestic law, you know, if it was done here. But assuming that there isn't even evidence of a benefit to the official, I think, you know, this would create a significant compliance issue for for companies doing business, you know, if this is the rule that's going to be applied in FCPA cases. I mean, we get instances all the time when companies – come to us you know for and say well uh, what do you think about this what do you think about us um making a contribution to a nature conservancy um we've done due diligence on the conservancy we've you know everything seems copacetic there's no you know the 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 government official supports it but he doesn't he's not on the board this isn't like the polish you know hospital uh the polish castle cases you know um this is, uh, you know, this is just something that we want him to feel good about us, and so we're going to do it, or we want the community to feel good about us. Or you get these cases where local police forces ask, you know, for um, very much like this, you know, we need cell phones. Our budget doesn't cover cell phones. We need cell phones so we can communicate with, you know, teams out in the field. Of course, they're, you know, if it's going into the you know private officials use and they're just going to be carrying it around and this is their their private cell phone that creates a problem but if there actually is evidence that they need this for their operational use and you make it transparent you make a you know you have a big ceremony you hand it over there's no one no secrecy generally i would say that that that's an acceptable um practice and it, and it, you know and usually it is tied to well if you can do this then we can provide make sure that the you know there's security around your plant or that we respond to your um, cases. So there's no question that there's a link there, but is it a corrupt link if it's not a personal benefit to the, you know, to the police chief? Uh, So far, we've always said no, but if this case is an indication that the DOJ is changing, which I, again, I don't think it is, but if it is, then, then this is going to change what companies have to think about when they do compliance. Actually, the the next question arose on January 1 of 2021, but it's uh, certainly pertinent to the discussion in 2020 and, and earlier, which was the National Defense Authorization Act and the Banking Secrecy Act component. And um, Congress overrode the president's veto on January 1, but I was wondering what your thoughts might be on the new requirements around reporting on shell corporations, uh, ultimate beneficial owners, recognizing that under the NDA, this is largely focused on financial institutions, but could this begin to uh, inform some of the DOJ's thinking on uh, due diligence and what uh, private uh, commercial organizations may need to do in this arena? 
Yes, yes, I, I think it, w- it, it will. Um, look, it's not altogether clear that the database or the transparency of the Delaware LLCs is going to be fully available to private you know, actors, as opposed to the government being able to go look and see who owns the companies. But because the, that there will exist some degree of transparency or reporting of the ultimate beneficial owners of Delaware LLCs, and and you know we're seeing similar things in the, with the EU and you know in the UK and extending that out to you know over over some objections to the BVI and um, Caymans. You know, I think DOJ's view is that this this idea that you can have a BVI company or a Delaware LLC company and that's all your due diligence can go to because they won't tell you who their UBOs are. I, I think DOJ has, you know, I don't think they ever had a lot of patience for that, but I think they'll have even less now. You know, the idea, is, you know, clearly there's a trend both in the United States and outside the United States and pushed by FATF, you know, the anti-money laundering organization, um, of more transparency of, of ultimate beneficial owners. And the last thing DOJ, <clears throat> well, that, you know, um, the DOJ is going to want to do is be embarrassed if they, you know, don't bring a case and then there's a Panama Papers thing and it turns out that all the companies involved are owned by government officials and, you know, this is published on, on the internet. Or companies don't want that either. I think because there's this trend toward transparency, it makes it that much harder for companies to refuse the due diligence requests that 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 should be being made. This is back, this, this comes back, it's very similar to what happened in Brazil frankly, after Lavajado. I mean, it used to be that, you know, we tell our companies, you need to do due diligence, you need to ask these questions, you need to ask whether a government official is involved or owns a company or benefits from the company. And we were all told, you know, you can't ask those questions. That's ins- insulting. It's insulting to do so- ask such a question. <clears throat> after Lavajado, you know, I can tell you, because we represent Brazilian companies as well as companies doing business in Brazil, you know, they've got their notebooks ready to go. Um, they are prepared to answer these questions. They understand that foreign companies have to ask these questions. And um, the idea that it's insulting to ask them is, is really not even on the table anymore. And I think that's going to be the case. You know, NDA just lends itself to the same narrative that, you know, this is keeping the beneficial owners a secret is just not acceptable if you want to do business with us. You touched a little bit earlier on some of your thoughts around where enforcement might be heading under a Biden administration, but I was wondering if I could could ask um, <clears throat> the fraud section, or my observation is the fraud section, and certainly the FCPA unit seem to be uh, fairly well insulated from political winds that might be blowing at the top of the Department of Justice, and they uh, sort of move along at their their own speed and pace based upon a pipeline of cases. And that, that, coupled with the professionalism of the line prosecutors in those organizations, seem to be, at least to me, one of the reasons that we've had a consistent approach to FCPA uh, enforcement. It, would that be a fair assessment? And if so, would you expect that trend to continue? Yes, I think that's a, I, I, I think it's fair. I mean, the FCPA unit is made up of um, you know, career, or at least, you know, as long as they're in the government career, I mean, there's a bit of a revolving door, uh, you know, but um, they're aggressive and um, have their own view of the scope of the statute that doesn't always align with the statute itself or or my understanding of it. But, um, but I don't 
have never seen a political aspect to it. And, you know, when I was in the government, you know, and I was bringing a case that had, you know, really some international implications uh, in terms of, um, uh, you know, our, our relationship with countries in a particular region in the middle of the, uh, you know, the Afghan and Gulf Wars, um, I, you know, no one ever said boo to me. And I, you know, I made sure the right people knew that we were doing, you know, we were preparing this case and no one, you know, in the government at the time, you know, said, no, you shouldn't do this case because, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look good for us. Um, and I've never seen any indication since, you know, I've never, you know, the Trump administration had the China initiative, but, you know, the FCPA cases were already being brought about China, you know, involving Chinese business in China. And we still haven't really seen any FCPA cases about Chinese companies coming out. So I, I you know, just don't see the political aspects uh, of, of the, of whichever administration's in control, you know, pushing a particular agenda at the, at the uh, fraud section level. Um, you know, the independence of the fraud section or the FCPA unit, you know, that always depends on, frankly, on, whether the AAG or the deputy AAG or the fraud section head, you know, himself or herself has a um, particular interest in the FCPA. You know, when I was doing it, no one cared about it other than us. And so we could, we did whatever we wanted, you know, later, you know, later AAGs, you know, had practiced in, had practiced in private practice in, and done FCPA cases. And they knew very well how important in these cases could be. And, and, you know, I think, you know, we're more interested in in being part of the resolution than than perhaps in the past. But those that's not political. That's just you know career. So Philip, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. We're going to link to the uh, Sherman Sterling uh, FCPA Digest for 2020 in our show notes. And I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to uh, visit with me. And uh, perhaps you're correct. We need to do this more than once a year. Well. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk to you. And and uh, if anyone is listening out there that has a nice, juicy investigation, um, my contact information is in the digest. It's on the website. You can find me easily and please call. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the pre-publication pre-sale of my latest book, The Compliance Handbook, Second Edition, published by LexisNexis. It will be published in April. Quite simply, this is the best single volume, single author book on compliance programs. The creation, the design, the implementation, and the enhancements of best practices compliance programs are all laid out in this book. If you're in the compliance field, and the compliance discipline, this is the book for you, far better than any other book on the market, if I may say so myself. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for pre-sale. There's also a discount. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.